Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. Here at Higher Branch, we have embedded the tree of charity into our framework for very good reason. For most of you familiar with our community, one of our frameworks is the eight areas of life, and that is what we need to be focusing on daily. And for those of you new to our community, it's a tree of health, the tree of love, the tree of family, the tree of work, the tree of friendship, learning, wealth, and charity. And they each fundamental human needs that we really can't live without and every time we neglect one of those fundamental human needs we diminish our life force in a profound way and those eight fundamental human needs that correlate to the eight areas of life is energy intimacy support fulfillment belonging for friendship growth for learning freedom for wealth and contribution for charity contribution is one of those fundamental human needs that validates our value in this great big world. We need to feel like we are valued. In Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, he makes a profound observation, and that is humans would rather be exploited than ignored, which tells you how important it is for us to make a contribution, no matter how big or small which is why I reiterate on many occasions that making a contribution does not have to be something grand. And you don't always have to walk around feeling like you need to do or pursue the job of your dreams. Even the sweeping the floor is, is something can make you feel better about yourself because you're making a contribution. And there's action and power. There's power and action, rather. So we haven't often talked about charity on our podcast. And so that's why today... Today, we're discussing an area that may be quite unfamiliar to a lot of you, but I'm interviewing a person who reminds us how to have strength from adversity and also how to give meaning to our lives when we are faced with adversity because life is really random when you think about it. There is not much that we can control, whether it's in the big world of houses and jobs and cars and everything. And there is stuff that we can't control at the cellular level that we're not even aware of. Recently, we stumbled upon a foundation called Neuroplastoma Australia, which became a registered charity in 2012. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with neuroplastoma, it is a very complex solid tumor cancer that claims more lives of children under the age of five than any other cancer. And the average diagnosis is just two years of age. And there are no known reasons why this cancer occurs. Now, I don't want you to switch off because you think, oh, this is going to be sad and I don't want to know about these things. It's human nature for us to do that. But I promise you, you will learn some incredible things from this podcast and you will learn some incredible things from the president of the Neuroplastoma Australia, Lucy Jones. Lucy, welcome to a high branch. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me today. During this episode, we are going to discuss your charity plus your personal experience as to why you started the charity and how investing in a charity really can shape your mindset or influence your life. And we're going to discuss techniques of mental and emotional strength and uh, how we can do our part in our community. But firstly, a little bit about yourself. So you're president of Neuroplastoma Australia. You have a master's in business administration 
with a uh, joint honours in modern languages, French and German, at the University of Bradford. That's right. That's right. And I'm actually now currently actually also studying for a psychology degree. Oh, wonderful. So also very interested in that area. So you're fluent at French and, and German? That's right. So grew up in England, lived in France and lived in Germany as well. Wonderful. It's one of those long lost arts. I remember my parents, like my father could speak five languages and now it's unheard of. But back then, it's what people did. They spoke multiple languages and it was a skill, just learning an instrument or what have you. So you started the charity after your daughter Sienna's battle with neuroplastoma. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how you started this charity? Yes, I, I think it, your life obviously takes a new direction when something really major obviously happens to you. And uh, we were living in the UK and then I decided to uh, move to uh, Australia to have almost like a maternity break with uh, my young daughter at that time, who was actually seven months of age when we moved to Australia. And really I had this vision of having an amazing, relaxing fulfilling break and then actually getting a a job in Australia for a number of years but things obviously didn't actually go that way and literally two months after arriving our daughter wasn't very well she had had full medicals before we came over here everything was totally normal but literally she was off her food kept having recurrent temperatures and took her to the GP a number of times he thought she was absolutely fine it was one of those sort of moments of intuition and I remember this day crystal clear in my mind that I just felt something wasn't right and that we should take her to the hospital so we did and we took her to Sydney Children's Hospital and and there they uh, did diagnose her with a very large tumour in her abdomen and told us it was very likely to be neuroblastoma and at that point we were saying well what on earth is that and we we didn't think you know it was going to be anything bad because you just don't think there is anything really terrible that's happening to young children in today's world you think we're living in a very modern society and Surely, young children, there'd be cures for these types of diseases. We soon learnt, quite frankly, that neuroblastoma is one of the worst childhood cancers that exists. Uh, And unfortunately, it comes in a number of different shapes and forms. And the most aggressive ones are really hard to cure. And uh, very sadly for us, our daughter was diagnosed with one of the most aggressive types of neuroblastoma. So she started treatment at nine months and went through really extensive treatment. Literally, because it's such an aggressive disease, they treat it really aggressively. And I Mm. I think people don't even realize that these young children go through nine to 12 months of relentless back-to-back treatments. And in a way, they're very inspiring because they haven't got any baggage and they just get on with what has to happen. And obviously, they're very young, so they have a lot of joy about them naturally. And in that way, they are quite uplifting to a parent watching. And as a parent, you feel immensely guilty because you see what they're having to go through and you can't help them. You can't take the chemotherapy for them. You have to watch this terrible toxic treatment being given to them. And with with the glimmer of hope, it's going to save them. And actually, our daughter, after about uh, nine months of treatment, was in remission. And we did get really hopeful. But unfortunately, as is very often the way with this disease, Mm. 50% of the children with high-risk neuroblastoma relapse within really 12 months of finishing treatment. And and very sadly, just after she turned two, we went for a routine scan. And they Mm. said, there are more tumours and at that point they'd already told us if she relapses there's really no chance of a cure so we did try a few clinical trials to try and get onto them but we were unsuccessful again because there's such a limited number of trials but also the eligibility criteria and 
they mm. tend to be overseas so they need a lot of funding and there's no clear evidence that they are going to save your child so it's just a very traumatic difficult situation to be in as a parent where you desperately want to save your child but the oncologists are telling you there's really nothing they can do literally after six months of trying to find different ways and try to hold the disease back mm. in some shape or form she did sadly pass away when she was two and a half years oh, I'm old. I'm so sorry to hear that. Having witnessed that it just totally changed my life I think you'd think how come these young children they're enduring so much and it's very extensive very prolonged very aggressive and yet they're still not surviving and they've got their whole lives ahead Mm. of them so I just felt enormously passionate and I can't just then say oh that was part of my life and I just turn over the next page and I'll go back to being a corporate buyer which is what I was beforehand I, I just can't just go back and wipe the slate clean and think that was okay because it just really wasn't okay and it really isn't okay that there are so many young children going through so much treatment which is very devastating and then obviously a lot of the time not surviving so for me that was a huge turning point that made me think there's so much more that can be done about it I don't think I would have got involved if I thought oh look we're nearly there and there's lots of things happening and in a few years time it will be resolved it's just there's just a such a massive chasm between where we're at and what could happen I I felt very compelled to try and do something about it because you're driven now by the single pointed focus of trying to prevent this saving children in the future aren't you that's right it's very much about saving children in the future because as I've learned research does take a long time and even you know we as a charity we've now donated nearly 2.4 million dollars to leading research projects but they are preclinical projects. So, you know, if they've discovered, for example, a drug that might help mm. children with neuroblastoma, it might take eight to 10 years to get then that drug into the standard treatments for a, a young child. But I just feel like, you know, if we don't do something today, the children in the future aren't going to benefit. And it's, in a way, I'm sure if more had been done 30 years ago, my daughter would be alive today. And feeling that, I, I feel there's almost a responsibility that we do take action today to help the children in the future. It takes a lot of courage to do that and a lot of hope as well because the journey is quite long like you said with research but you've taken the first few steps and it's now been nine years which is incredible to aid in that research. Can I just ask you some personal questions? How did you feel at the time? Did you did you start asking yourself how did this happen? Did I do anything wrong? Did I feed my child something that I shouldn't have? Like I'm just throwing those questions out there because most of us psychologically whether we get sick or something happens to us or something happens to our children, we start thinking, oh, where did I go wrong? Could I have foreseen this? Could I have pivoted, changed something? Did you ask yourself those questions and how did you neutralise those negative uh, thoughts? Look, I I think every parent does ask themselves those questions and I think I definitely ask myself those questions I ask my doctor those questions and the answer is is actually no it's a bit of a random disease it's a one in a hundred thousand chance that your child has got this an embryonic cell that's left over after the baby's born that for some reason doesn't develop quite correctly that's a tiny error in the reproduction of that cell and for some reason certain children must have a predisposition even in between male and female there's no geographical criteria or environmental criteria in in terms of hereditary genes it's 15 percent only of cases so it's actually Mm. almost a random scenario where certain 
there must possibly be some sort of predisposition and the body for some reason doesn't recognize as an incorrect copy that's been done and unfortunately it can then um, develop into a tumor so I think everybody asks themselves and doctors are quite clear no you didn't do anything wrong it's random we don't quite know exactly why this is happening they are getting slightly closer with all this genome sequencing the understanding what happens in terms of the tumor forming and then developing and they've for example, identified about 13 genes which tend to drive tumor growth, but right. they also know yep. there are another, mm-hmm. probably more, not, not sure how many, but there are more that they haven't identified that would also be responsible for driving tumor growth. So even though they've also identified these almost targets, unfortunately, they still haven't found a way to attack the targets in a number of instances. Yeah, there's a, a particularly aggressive gene called MNIC, which my daughter had within her tumor, and that was recognized 10 years ago. And they still haven't found a way of targeting that gene, which is mm. causes the tumor to be extremely aggressive. But what they have now done, for example, at the Children's Cancer Institute, is they've found a way of blocking the mechanism that feeds that gene to be able to function so they're going a few steps back to try and prevent that gene from being able to develop and really boost the growth of the tumor so yes. yeah it's incredible we live in a time where you know biotechnology is just incredibly accurate and we're so fortunate to be living in, the, in these times but let me ask you you mentioned something about sienna's purity and approaching this with a no baggage what did you learn from her during that time and what could we learn? I always get my advice from older people because they have perspective and mm. younger people because they have purity. Mm. I, in fact, shared recently on a podcast with Karen Sander, her podcast called Aging Fearlessly, and she asked me what was the best piece of advice that you were uh, ever given. And I said it was by my six-year-old daughter. And mm. I shared that on the podcast and I won't repeat it. But with Sienna, what did you learn and what can we learn from how she dealt with this i think more as a two-year-old when she started communicating and speaking and it was after she relapsed it was still amazing the amount of huge amounts of level of energy and she had for example radiation treatment and even go into hospital every single day and because she was so young would have to have a general anesthetic every single day to have her radiation and then as soon as that been done and she'd be in recovery she'd get moved back to the oncology ward the nurses would come around and then she'd be like saying oh playroom go home go park go beach and just literally wanted to get on with life it was as soon as this is done I'm out of here and I'm gonna go and enjoy myself and there was me (laughs) in the chair looking and feeling exhausted just having watched it all but yeah it was really unbelievable that sort of just getting on living life really was so she lived completely in the moment and the moment that that treatment was over it was like okay don't wallow in the misery of that just what do I want to do which is fun I'm going to go and do that now she just did that and it was like it was a huge amount of energy from a little person and I think this is and this is not just me probably talking about my child but talking to other mothers and dads who've lost their children they always are really inspired by their child in terms of just the strength of character that comes through and that we're all laden down with the fear and the anxiety Mm. in a way gets you through it looking at your child who really is a shining light is really yeah is even I remember my oncologist going when she passed away saying she was such a joyous child and she really was that's what that probably helps get through difficult times because she was such a bright light and there are lots of really lovely positive memories so I think that's what's you know really important 
as well. And I think it would be really hard if you'd you know, had a child that, I guess, acted like an adult, quite frankly. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, it's definitely, I think, she might, oh, yeah, she was only on this earth for two and a half years. How come this is now me, like, 11 years later, actually, that I'm still doing what I'm doing? She was on this earth for such a short period of time. But mm. for me, obviously, you made a massive impact being my child, but also having watched what she went through. But even on other people, they have been impacted by her just because, again, from her little personality that shone through right from an early age and mm. just how she managed that horrendous treatment and that disease. So, yeah, it's definitely children really do inspire. So she was fearless, in effect, really. Yeah, she generally was. There were some, were some procedures which obviously were pretty stressful, but she used to get more stressed when they were wanting to anesthetize her because she didn't want to be anesthetized, which I always thought was interesting because it was like, no, I want to enjoy life. I don't want to not be conscious of everything. Oh, so, wow. So, okay. That's, so, yeah, yeah, that's an incredible lesson because one of the frameworks we have at High Branch is, and my, I always repeat this and sign off at every episode, I say live consciously, my friends, because as we go into adulthood, we start pretty much living 85% of our days from the subconscious. So it's really interesting how she said, no, I, I want to be conscious. I want to be alive. I mm. want to uh, experience everything. And we don't realize that somewhere on the road from childhood to adulthood, we go from a default state of happiness. Mm. And it takes some things to make us unhappy, like we fall and graze our knee and it's temporary and then we go back to a default state of happiness. Mm. But as we become adults somewhere on that journey, and it flips, we go into a default state of unhappiness, and then we need things to make us happy, like a chocolate bar or a pair of shoes or a <laughs> shiny new car. And it's really interesting. She's tied her happiness to being conscious. So at that age, she would have been living every single moment really from the conscious mind rather than automatic mode and that's a, it's a beautiful lesson for everyone that's listening that you really need to shake things up in your day and if you feel like you're just going through the motions and becoming numb to what's around you your five senses are just not coming alive because you're eating the same foods doing the same things every day brushing your teeth with the same hand getting out the same side of the bed wearing the same sort of thing you need to go looking for adventure and i think Sienna's really major message is that, isn't it, really? Yeah, certainly was. You always wouldn't sit still, always off trying to explore, definitely. So... Wow. It was, uh, I have to say, I had to take friends with me to try and keep up with her because I just couldn't keep up with her. Which is, That's incredible. You know, it's funny, that just that level of energy in life, despite everything she was going through. Yeah. And it, we're sitting in my office here at Macquarie Park and recording this in the studio. And I often walk through the office and, and sometimes I'll hear someone saying, oh, I'm so tired today, I have no energy. And sometimes I'll pull them aside and I say, well, actually, you are energy. When you're tired, it doesn't mean that you have no energy. It just means the energy is trapped inside mm -hmm. of you, unreleased. So it's amazing you, you have this you know, little girl, she would have been tiny, mm. right? Not many kilos there, mm. but she had energy to burn. So That's exactly right. So energy comes from our mental and emotional and spiritual selves. It's not from the food we eat or it's all in the mind, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. no, totally. And you can say that because obviously with the 
child on chemotherapy they don't eat that much anyway so she was mainly having milk and some other sort of extra supplement milk but yeah so she obviously had the fuel she needed but she was just a bundle of energy so yes I I guess you do look back and you do think why did it happen to me etc but I have to say I've never felt angry really about it because I just feel it could happen to anybody and I was unlucky totally and it unfortunately it does change your life forever there's no like getting back to how it was before because as much as people say oh you should just move on etc you just as a mother I really don't think you do I think you do adjust to that loss and you live with the loss and you find a way of moving forward but there's no way you can just go oh that was a bad episode in my life or that was something that happened and it's now behind me not for me Mm. personally at least so let's talk about then how you've turned that as an adult you view it as an adversity yeah yeah and so you've acknowledged that your life will never be the same, but yeah. you've also given that meaning. Because I love how the most inspirational people that I've come across give their adversity meaning because they've pivoted in their life. They've done something to, first of all, own that adversity. You've owned it and you've started the, the charity out of it. What was your journey of going through the pain? And obviously there would have been some grief there. Look, it was all organic, really. It was really a funny thing in terms of you, you do something that you're passionate about and you're not even conscious sometimes that you're doing it because you're so passionate about it. So like working for the charity is not a lot of the time like working. I just am fueled by that passion and the the need to do something about it. Certainly after Sienna passed away, I had my son five days after she passed away, which was really um, hard as well because in a way you should be celebrating new life. But I also had to manage this terrible feeling of loss at the same time. So Mm. there was quite a crossover of two worlds there. And yeah, that was quite, in a way, confusing. I I suffered quite a lot from anxiety Mm. suddenly after Sienna died for quite a number of years. And I think that was, again, almost having stayed so strong all through her treatments and held it together really well. (laughs) I think afterwards, managing a young child, being obviously under a lot of stress and hormonal etc certainly suddenly the anxiety appeared that I'd never ever experienced before and look it took me a few years to get on top of that and to manage that effectively at the same time I used really my work to help with that my work was almost therapeutic and I felt that again having a real goal actually helped me manage that period of my life that it wasn't that my life was without meaning I, I had a goal and I had my son to look after who was really a huge benefit to me at that point in time he still obviously is but without him it would have been so much harder I'm incredibly grateful I have my son and I also do think I am really grateful for having had my daughter even though it was for two and a half years I'm aware some parents don't get two and a half years even with their child Mm. or don't even get to have a child so I think it's, it's important to be grateful that I had the opportunity of knowing my daughter and seeing her develop for at least two and a half years and then the opportunity to have another child so I think that's one way of saying there are positives and you've got to pull those up and make them forefront rather than just focus on the negatives and focus on some pretty awful things that happened you've got to pull up the positives and really also give yourself that goal in life which has really helped keep me focused and driven and really in a way we have Sienna to thank for 
this charity, don't we? Oh, totally. Without uh, Sienna, obviously, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And certainly, I initially started it. When I came across the disease, I was really shocked. And I started doing fundraising when she was still alive because I just couldn't believe this disease existed. Nobody had ever heard of it why the treatments weren't better so I just started doing bits of fundraising and then it just really grew and grew and uh, the parents came on board and helped me set it up and develop it and it is what it is today and we're still quite a small charity obviously by charity standards but I do feel good about what we've done and what we're doing and how we've developed there's still an awful long way to go but I do feel that we've made a difference. So just before we go on, how can we make a difference then in our community? Where can you donate to neuroblastomas? Is there a website that we go to? Yeah, so we, we have a website. It's, it's www.neuroblastoma.org.au. So horribly long word. And uh, it probably doesn't help having a difficult word to, to increase awareness. But then I think of leukemia. And then leukemia, which is actually the number one childhood cancer that has actually done better in terms of research basically because of the higher numbers but they Mm. have managed thanks to research to certainly improve survival rates of certain types of leukemia uh, and we'd really like to get higher levels of funding for research into neuroblastoma so we can also increase the survival rates look we want 100% survival for all childhood cancers and people just don't realize that childhood cancers unfortunately are well they certainly come second to adult cancers generally because if you're doing the economics and you're a big pharmaceutical company quite frankly they they look at the size of the market and because these are rare childhood cancers it's not an area they invest a lot of money in and that's what I also feel quite passionate about is the disparity between the adult cancers and the childhood cancers and adult cancers tend to be are totally different to childhood cancers and Childhood cancers are developed internally, really, from within the child, and they're not as a result of external factors, which often adult cancers are. But because there's no clear economic return commercially, it's harder to attract lots of funding. And that's a tragedy. And I I think this is where governments, uh, obviously can play a part because things like this shouldn't be based on economies of scale and a return on investment. There are some things that need to be socialist by nature. Absolutely right and that's what I feel and you can look at how much money might be spent on a football stadium which is uh, 20 times more than maybe that's spent on childhood cancer and it's like what how does that add up? Really this is about children's lives and really it's their whole life it's their whole lives ahead of them that are being taken and it's not just their lives it is it massively impacts siblings and parents forevermore so Mm. really the real cost of it is is really quite significant but it it is this is an ethical question should you let these children go through all this really horrendous treatment and then still accept that half of them are going to pass away you're also accepting because of the very extensive and toxic treatments that children go through that a third of those children that do survive will have lifelong lasting effects from their treatments and they have a much higher rate of getting another cancer and passing away before they're 30. It's for me the government if you're in a a developed country that has got lots of means available and you're making choices between like football stadiums and childhood cancer you really childhood cancer's got to come first it really has. Absolutely 
Well, I know if I was Prime Minister, <laughs> that's, uh, the, the health would be a priority before entertainment, definitely. And just to see a child that can be the next surgeon or the next author. And Sienna sounded like she had uh, an incredible personality that would have brought joy to a lot of people. But you've given her life meaning by starting this incredible charity. If you're listening out there, if the name is too long for you, just Google Lucy Jones Neuro. That's N-E-U-R-O, blastoma, B-L-A-S-T-O-M-A. It's spelt how it's uh, (laughs) pronounced, Australia. And yeah, please, please donate what you can because I'm completely inspired by Lucy's drive and how she's pivoted in her life and your strength as well. And in dealing with this, I accept that you went through a tough period of anxiety. And even though you had no anxiety in your life prior to that, it shows that we all have a breaking point. We all have a something that can just throw us off a balance. And we need to be able to refocus and be brought back to our own sense of calm and equilibrium. So can I take you through the eight areas of life, okay, and tell me really how your life was shaped by this event in each one of those areas. So starting off with health, health for us fills a fundamental human need for energy yeah. uh, for all humans. But health and energy is in four levels. There's the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. So can you tell us what you started doing differently in the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual that helped you overcome, first of all, the grief, then the anxiety, and uh, to give you the strength that you obviously have now? And I think when I was having a particularly hard time after my daughter passed away, I was much more open to trying out new things for my health. So I did do things such as say yoga and pilates and i actually did find them really quite calming Mm. even swimming and just trying to be a bit more mindful i did do some anxiety counseling and i think you have to find a counselor or somebody you really connect with and they present or they explain to you what's happening to you in a way that you understand and you actually realize what you can actually do to help yourself and I'm very much believe it you've got to help yourself at the end of the day you can get support but you've really got to help yourself so I think for me actually understanding how anxiety works was really important and actually understanding how the body works and how the mind and the body are connected uh, and how you can interrupt anxiety through just breathing slowly actually yeah. does change how your brain's feeling so I think practicing things which are telling your mind it's okay and doing activities which help calm you or your mind and gives you then that tranquility and space to think more logically is really what I, I did um, and I did that for a number of years but I still think there's a, a real benefit to trying to take space out of your normal busy day to try and just get perspective um, and I think that's still really important for me because I'm going you know, to hold my hand up that I can get totally sucked into what I'm doing and be so passionate about it that I'm a bit obsessive about it so it is important still to start to feel how you're feeling if that makes sense uh, and recognize that and then try and take a bit of space. And what about mentally and emotionally? How did you start thinking different? Did you have a different perspective? Did you, for example, uh, look at stuff that you would previously stress over and not really (laughs) worry about those things? Definitely. It did make me 
feel for the first three or four years, oh, that's so trivial. How can people be spending time talking about that? It is so, <laughs> and it was almost like, it was even hard, if I'm really honest, to just join normal conversations. It really hard because you've just seen like the worst thing possible happen. How can you possibly talk, be talking about something? I tried to join a mother's group actually with my son and it just really didn't work because the parents mm. were stressing over their son or daughter getting an injection. You'd just been through two years of intensive back to fra- fra- wow. full on treatment. Yes. And I couldn't really say anything, but I just felt I really don't feel part of this world because that's not the world I've lived in. And yes. I don't yes. want to actually explain to everybody what I've just gone through because that's not really nice for them having a young child. And it often was their first child. It did make me think, oh, what you need to focus in on life is something which is important to you and not spend too much time talking about things which are really trivial try and take a step back from them uh, and just where can you actually make a difference but where are the opportunities where you can give back be a decent person I think that's really important and I have to say doing the charity it's been really hard at times but then there's always whenever there are moments where I think oh it feels like walking through mud suddenly something really good always happens and there's always that uplifting feeling that there's always somebody out there who actually does come forward and does give back or wants to help or do something so I think I've always had this firm belief and I still do (laughs) everything is possible if you really put your mind to it it is hard but interestingly I've always had this approach I remember even when I was working in the corporate world my director at the time said to me the interesting thing about you Lucy is you don't seem to see any obstacles and I'm still a bit like that because it's that's the goal and that's where I'm heading and that's what we just have to keep aiming for and just keep plugging away yeah in that respect I haven't changed but yeah I am more aware of where it's worth investing time and where it's not so your priorities have shifted yeah and I I would say before I was very focused on having a career I wasn't actually really thinking about charities and I openly say that I guess I felt I had a pretty normal life and everything was going to be normal and actually I now look back and think it's a shame you didn't actually have your eyes a bit wider open at that point because you didn't really think about charities yourself so I'm the first to put my hand up to say actually quite often Obi's lives are so busy that you don't think about what else you can do or maybe give back more to the community I was always interested in doing things for other people etc but hadn't really uh, thought about doing something charitable until this happened yeah I would truly say that living in an oncology ward truly opened my eyes to other people's adversity and actually be more understanding and compassionate of others. Absolutely. But now your charity is also your work. And I I talk about the eight areas of life. They're not separate parts of our life. I talk about a concept called life blending. So I say if your work gives you fulfillment, definitely, but your work can also be your contribution if you focus on the people that you are helping. So, Lucy, your work now is basically your charity that you've started and it must bring you so much purpose to have a job that is aligned with your sense of contribution. So it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, it certainly does. And I think I'm lucky in a way that I can go to work and I can determine the direction that I feel the charity needs to go in. I feel obviously in tune with the values because I'm in a way setting those values and the tone and that's really important to me as a person and uh, you know it's always to work within an environment which you feel aligned with and I think that is a real bonus for me and then obviously also to work with other people who are like-minded who want to give back who are really 
kind compassionate people is obviously a massive bonus to me because you know again that sort of gives you a sense of reassurance that you know that humanity is there that people do want to really help find a cure for these children with cancer beautiful so do you mind me asking then in the tree of love okay how did this adversity change your experience within your relationship your personal relationship intimate relationships between two partners is all about intimacy physical and emotional did you go through challenges there how did you overcome them yeah I think during those initial few years after losing Sienna it was hard because I, I felt I was probably operating in a bit of a silo in, at times but it was just to almost get me through those challenging times but I always look back on what we've been through together and the fact that we've actually mm got through it together has been a real positive and that we're quite a good team a lot of couples do split up and that's why I asked that question yeah yeah having gone through this but I think our characteristics work well with each other and we both have the same values so I think it's just strengthened that relationship in terms of we both know exactly who we are I'm very lucky in terms of my partner's very understanding of what I feel I need to do and it's very different to how he feels about what he Mm. needs to do Uh, And look, we both have to respect we're different in that regard. I'm lucky he's given me the space to do that. He does his thing, which is quite separate to mine, which probably is also a bonus because I think if we're working (laughs) on the same thing, it probably would lead to a few arguments. (laughs) What's his name? Oliver. Oliver. Hello, Oliver. I think you just have to look back and I feel we've been a team and there there definitely be challenges, but just how we work, we work well together. I think it's just... If I'd been with somebody who was more, say, like myself, it just wouldn't have worked. Yes. <laughs> but because we're slightly opposite, but we have these huge overlap of values, it works well. And was it difficult to remain intimate for a period during that or yeah, after it? Not really. It didn't really impact that much, really. I think you're just maybe not as present in terms of focused and as light-hearted and relaxed as you would normally be once mm. you've gone through such a terrible situation. So I think it's that's what changes is just your natural spontaneity is affected yes and i guess sienna's uh, beautiful example is that you just got to get on with life mm. just keep doing it okay yeah. uh, the anesthetics is worn off mm. next yeah. beach play mm. and uh, intimacy and uh, when it comes to family then uh, you have a son what's his name jamie jamie okay and how old is jamie now he's now 11 Wow, okay. And how has it helped you guys as parents with uh, Jamie? Because you mentioned gratitude earlier, gratefulness, like six times within two minutes. Yeah, I do think it's really important to be grateful. And I think it's funny because you get everyday reminders when you go to, weirdly, to restaurants, everything's laid out for four people and you get on a plane, there are four seats and the waitress or the waiter comes up and says, oh, are you waiting for somebody? Or are there only just the three of you? And every time somebody says that to you, you go, yeah, no, yeah. it's just painful in a way because it's one child it feels missing but thank goodness we have Jamie because quite frankly I think you know we would feel very lonely and he's brought us so much joy and he's he's a lovely son and yeah I I know a few parents who they lost their only child and I just think you know that's really hard for Jamie he's very uplifting as as you said the children are pure and they have again he's got lots of energy and he's a really fun character brings a lot of joy to us yeah, does he take after you or Oliver? <laughs> I probably could debate that. I think he's definitely got elements of me, but yeah, he probably does now sort of, he's quite a deep thinker, which is probably more me about dwelling on things and 
right. now reviewing things more, <laughs> whereas Oliver's very pragmatic and is just very action-focused. So Jamie's probably a little bit like me in that regard, but then he's pretty good at maths, so he's like his dad. <laughs> <laughs> so what about your friendships? Did your friendships stay the same or different after your experience with Sienna's loss? They definitely changed. Did you start choosing friends on different criteria? Did you more align yourself with people that had the same values I think I always aligned myself with people who had the same values but I would say I was quite upset with some people through my whole journey because I felt that they would come forward and be more supportive and Mm. they weren't and yeah that was disappointing and then on the other hand there were people who I didn't consider as really good friends who were amazing so I think I felt quite upset particularly at certain times during my journey oh they were a really good friend of mine why aren't they you know contacting me and I think somebody said to me you need to accept that sometimes some people have the ability to deal with this and some people just don't and you're also being accepting of Mm. what somebody's capable of and what somebody's not capable of and I I do tend to be a bit black and white but I I did think that that did make sense because certainly friends who were really good probably had encountered loss themselves or they worked in that area of loss i had one friend who worked in a hospice and she flew over from the uk and she spent um two weeks hanging out with me in hospital and all the mums on the ward absolutely daughter because she'd spend two you know loads of time talking to everybody she's a very giving uh, person so yeah the people who really surprised me and then people uh, yes i'm honestly and i felt like oh disappointed that they weren't there for me really things have changed over time and i think people were also almost concerned that I wasn't my former self in a way so maybe they didn't feel comfortable the last five years they've been much more engaged or contacted me a lot more and it was almost like they gave me time to recover and you can either see that two ways you can say that was maybe a sensible thing to do but on the other hand it could have been good to have checked in a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. But like you said, some people just can't handle the stress or the heartache, I guess that goes with that. So I know people who are very caring, beautiful individuals, but they just can't go to funerals, for example, or express their condolences because they just fall apart. Yeah. 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 So when it comes to friendships, what are the sort of the qualities that attract you to certain friends to explore that friendship? What, What do you look for? I look for somebody who's heartfelt, genuine, who is reliable. Reliability is quite important to me because I think it's important that if somebody commits to doing something as well that you do it or at least explain if you can't do it because otherwise it's unfair on the other person. I feel you've got to treat somebody how you would like to be treated. So I, I think it's just really important that you respect another person and you respect their time, respect their effort and you do the same for them so it's a two-way relationship and I think I've always felt that way uh, and I still feel that way probably more strongly than ever that particularly in a really busy world everybody is really busy so you Mm. can't prioritize your time over somebody else's so you have to accept that you know if they you you treat them as an equal so I'm, I'm really focused on that and also just key values in terms of making sure that you think of others you're not thinking only about yourself about what else you could do to help and try and reach out I think to people as well like I have got a few friends who have had certain things happen to them I do think it's important particularly maybe with my own experience but I would like to think I would have done it anyway that if people are having a hard time I do think it's important to reach out. 
Beautiful. What is the biggest lesson, I guess, you've learned from all this that you'd like to share with people? We learn through our own experiences, but the easier way to learn is through other people's experiences mm. and taking on board, you know, what they've gone through. People like yourself who have gone through that adversity, then the anxiety and with the charity, you're so passionate about that. You have a perspective that we can only read about. And there's a lot of people that just live in this middle mm. where life isn't great and it's not bad. It's like numb. It's in the middle somewhere. <laughs> and not just people listening, for me included, I'd love to know what are the biggest lessons that you've learned? For me, I think if you keep persevering and you keep you know, getting out of bed every day and you have a goal, even if it's a really small goal, Things do improve over time. I think that's firstly like when you're in a really bad place that you can get out of it and things do improve with time, certainly. It does help. It doesn't resolve things, but it can allow you to find ways to get through things, find coping ways, etc. So I think it's really important to think that there is light at the end of the tunnel and sometimes that tunnel can be really long. You can get there and you should reach out for support even if you need it. For me on another level is now is you know if you're in a job which is okay but not particularly fulfilling is find something which is fulfilling or can you find something fulfilling outside that job itself so it could be outside work but I think everything points in the direction that if you've got a goal that's somehow in line with your values or something which is fulfilling you will have obviously a much more fulfilling life so you do need to think about what do you like doing how can you get more out of your life and small steps is often the way to try to make that happen. I knew you were going to say that because you mentioned earlier you like to persevere you don't give up and I love how you'll glimpse at the top of the mountain sometimes, but then you straight back down looking at the next step that you need to climb. And I love what you said then because it's about trust, isn't it? It's about trusting time will heal and never giving up on yourself. And it reminds me of also a friend of mine who recently was diagnosed with breast cancer and she went through, I'd imagine, a tough period with chemotherapy. And every time I spoke to her, she was like, that's okay, that's the next step. And after that step, I'm going to go through this step. And she never, ever gave up. You need the emotional resilience, the mental toughness. And if you feel like you don't have that strength, just focus on the first step, then the second step. Take it one step at a time, as Lucy said. Lucy, did you ever see yourself as a really tough person, even before this? Or did you become a tough person? I've always been very determined. I think that's been one of my strengths. But yes, I think mentally very strong in terms of what I've gone through. And I think sometimes, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it probably for that a few years of horrendous experience has made me stronger in some ways. In other ways, it, it has made me more vulnerable. But overall, I think that if you come out the other side, which everybody can do with time, it, it does give you a certain strength. Absolutely. And what makes you vulnerable makes you beautiful as well and talking to you i think of so many people i've interviewed on this podcast and there's a common thread from people like david goggins who's now known as the toughest man alive there are a lot of the qualities you shared uh, common with people like that just about every expert i've had on here whether it's neuroplasticity or naturopaths or meditation coaches they've given their craft or their gift and their knowledge has come out of going through periods of adversity in their life and from that they found a passion and they found meaning by sharing their story by giving your adversity 
meaning, I think, is where the true magic lies. And you've got a view that what's happened to you, you've got to trust that any adversity you go through life, whether it's small or whether it's big, that it's a gift and it's a gift to maybe your future or the people in your life. You need to trust that it's somewhere, somehow, sometime, it's going to be good for you. But not just good for you, but the people around you. It could be your kids, it could be your friends, it could be the people that listen to your story that are listening right now. One of the frameworks at a high branch is a circle of conscious living. And one of those steps in five steps is acceptance, practicing acceptance, because there's so much power in acceptance. Once you accept your circumstances and view something as a gift, you can start taking the first step and the second step and the third step. So thank you so much for sharing that bit of wisdom and reminding us of the importance of acceptance. Lucy, was there anything else you'd like to share with us before we go? I can't believe it's been an hour already. <laughs> no, it's been, been great to talk to you today. Thank you very much for, for having me on. And hopefully I've uh, been able to illuminate what Neuroblastoma Australia is about and, and what we're doing and why I'm doing it. Thank Absolutely. You. And more your inspiring story and the inspiration also from the way Sienna dealt with it and how you, Oliver, have come out of it and stayed strong and determined. And no doubt it's something that Jamie will learn as he gets older and something beautiful will come out of that for him and the memory of his sisters, the way she dealt with it. It's, I think it's quite inspiring. It's inspired me. I'm certainly going to be one of the people who will donate. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, absolutely. It'll be my pleasure. And again, for everyone that's listening, just Google Lucy Jones Neuroblastoma. It's N-E-U-R-O-B-L-A-S-T-O-M-A Australia. It's a worthwhile charity and I would absolutely love it if you would support. Lucy, thank you again for coming uh, on this podcast. I always try and have these podcasts to be really informative and we often focus on areas of very benign, unemotional and being a highly sensitive person for some people. It can make them tearful but it also makes them compassionate. It was interesting how you mentioned the people that came forward to you are the ones that went through their own adversity so they had compassion they had empathy empathy and so if you're a highly sensitive person and you reach for the box of tissues just remember that you're absolutely beautiful and also again if you can do two things on the back of this podcast number one is just to remember the lessons and the insights that lucy shared with us because there's some absolute beautiful lessons in there for us and two as well just don't neglect the tree of charity it's one of the important areas of life we often see celebrities who have billions of dollars in the bank and you see them like they go to africa or syria or what have you and they spend weeks and months there away from their beverly hills mansions and they they could have anything on the planet and yet they choose that why? It's because contribution or having empathy and a compassion for others, that's an important part of who you are as a human being. And charity isn't just about giving money. If you're in a position to give money and support people like Lucy, who's doing the battle for us, then that's great. But also listening to a person who's going through a hard time, being there, being present, and you can give charity or show charity in so many different ways. It could be helping the new person that started at work or reaching out to the new neighbor that's just moved in and they want to know where the best shops are for groceries and what have you. 
So please don't neglect the Tree of Charity. And if you have my book, A Higher Branch, read that chapter. It was chapter 9 of my book, which is one of my favourite um, uh, chapters in the book, uh, inspired by my grandmother, Rose. Anyway, on that note, thank you all for listening. Until next time, live consciously, my friends. <laughs>